Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, drop us a like, leave a comment. Let me know how I'm doing as I continue to bring you interesting content each and every week. Um, very, very special guest. Uh, not only is this gentleman uh, doing some amazing things in the world of healthcare, he's just a really down to earth brother, somebody I've known for a while, have a lot of respect for and admiration. And so let me get into his lengthy, lengthy bio. Oh, <laughs> he's doing no, a no. lot. He's doing <laughs> a lot. Um, I want to introduce Dr. Ahmad Garrett Price. He is the founder and president of GP Health, a proactive preventative health practice platform focused on prevention and lifestyle modification. Dr. Garrett Price is a board-certified family medicine physician leader with extensive experience in large integrated health systems and 12-plus years of practice experience in the primary care arena. In addition, Dr. Garrett Price has been at the forefront of developing and piloting some of the first system-wide virtual health offerings and leading the first membership-based hybrid direct care model for the largest nonprofit health system in Texas. He is a proud graduate of Morehouse College and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, and he's passionate about constructive innovation and forging a proactive and preventative approach which can be more sustainable to health and well-being. Dr. Garrett Price, welcome to the show. Uh, Edric, thank you uh, for that uh, gracious uh, introduction. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I appreciate you having me. Love what you're doing with the show. And thanks for making space for me on your platform, for sure. Of course, of course. Uh, we've got some exciting things to talk about. So let's get right into it. Uh, you have started and, and, and founded GP Health. Um, tell me about GP Health, the motivation for starting and beginning this practice. Uh, and what are the goals and objectives of this groundbreaking innovative health system? Yeah, so so GP Health is a primary care service and platform taking a proactive and preventative focus to healthcare. Um, it's our belief that the uh, power of health and longevity really resides in how we live our daily lives. So we really designed a practice, right, medical practice, but also this accompanying platform, be that technology or a trusted ecosystem of resources, think a dietitian or a health coach, to really shepherd and move our patients to, uh, or I should say our members, to better health, better quality of life, therefore better health outcomes. Um, and so it's something that I'm passionate about. Um, and you've known me for a while from prior practice in that, you know, we're always looking to innovate and move uh, healthcare forward to a certain degree. Um, and so the origins of it really kind of lie in the beginning of the story and just kind of has a lot to do with my upbringing and kind of my experience in, in healthcare. So that's kind of who we are in a nutshell. And obviously we can get more granular here. Sure. Um, well, on that point, let's talk about your, your upbringing because uh, your father was a, was a physician as well. And so you've seen uh, the, the large practices, the small practices, the, the community-based medicine, you've, you've have a lot of experience in different types of systems. So how are you bringing that experience to GP health and uh, how does your background pl play a role in what you're doing now? Yeah. So, you know, my father was a small town physician from the small town in East Texas, I think 30 to 40,000. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of all I knew when I grew up. Um, we, we spent a lot of time around his office. He was a small town doc. I should also say my mother was a nurse, so she helped him run that practice. 
And so that really formed kind of my idea of healthcare and medicine as it was moving forward at the time. And then, um, you know, he got called to do a bigger office and a bigger practice in the in, in Dallas. And so we ended up moving to Dallas. But that memory of kind of small town medicine where you may get paid in casseroles or <laughs> farm fresh eggs, you know, stuck with me. And I said, wow, he's making a difference. I didn't quite understand what it meant to be a physician then. Um, but that was like planted the seed for a lot of what I do now. And so he went to Dallas larger practice, managed care for all those of us who are in healthcare was starting to take hold at the time. So the private doc, private physician was being kind of folded into large groups. And so he went into a large group in Dallas, ended up graduating high school here in Dallas, just south of Dallas, was a student athlete at um, Morehouse College, played soccer, um, obviously did what I needed to do academically. Mm-hmm. Um And I say that to say that that's also an important part of the story and that I guess being a student athlete really taught me a lot about kind of time management and actually being a professional because you almost had to be a professional before you were a professional. And I was at a school where academics and scholarship were valued over athletic achievements. Hmm. Um, So, yes, I would have games on Saturdays, but you had to take an exam on Monday, no questions asked. So it really started to, you know, in terms of time management, what it took to succeed. And obviously you have to achieve academically at a certain pace. So that laid some groundwork as well. Fast forward, went to UT Southwestern for medical school here in Dallas. Um, They have a distinction for being foremost research institution, was a top 10 medical school at the time. Um, And so a lot of good exposure, trained at Parkland Hospital for a bit. Um, And then I went to, you know, I went to medical school thinking that I was going to be a surgeon or anesthesiologist. And, you know, up until maybe my third or fourth year of medical school, I was doing that. And so I I ended up doing a rotation with a family doc Mm -hmm. of all folks who was a military doc, Air Force. Um, So we actually did a lot of the Air Force physicals for the pilots. I was like, oh, this is really cool. His office was like a flight museum. And then one day a patient comes in and um, I think she was like, I would say mid thirties. And she was like, Hey, Dr. Almond and rest in peace to Dr. Almond. She's like, Oh yeah. Dr. Almond sees my mom and he delivered me. I was like delivered. And at the time I didn't know, I was like, okay, so family docs can deliver babies. And I ended up delivering and, you know, when I went to residency and then I saw this whole arc of care, I was like, wait, so he's seeing mom, dad, he sees her, he knows their family history he's clearly big in this community. And so it instantly took me back 20, 30 years, right, to where my father was. I was like, oh, this kind of resembles that. And I was like, I was looking for this and not knowing I was looking for it. So immediately I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I go, I do my family practice residency um, in Houston and Conroe, get to be chief resident. And when you're chief resident, you start educating the uh, medical students, you start educating the residents, but also you start getting exposed to the business of medicine. Mm -hmm. So it's not just this clinical practice anymore. So I start to get a more granular sense of how my industry actually works. And so there were some eye-opening things there. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so you start to (laughs) form some other opinions and say, okay, this is much more than me seeing patients in an exam room. And uh, I then had the opportunity uh, to go out to Kaiser Permanente of Northern California, 
um, which was a pivotal moment in my career. And I'm leading up to kind of GP health. And that was sure. a pivotal moment in, in that, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act was being developed. Uh, a lot of what was happening in Kaiser was uh, being attempted around the country, uh, but folks weren't necessarily successful. And so I like to think of my time there, which I'm grateful for, as almost like this fellowship in integrated care delivery mm. to a population at scale. Because mm -hmm. before I had seen this, now I'm seeing this. You know, we're talking about an area where you have 80, 90 percent market share. And so it was efficient, um, obviously high quality metrics, and there was a systematic approach to doing this. And so from that, and not only that, they had embraced technology at the time. So we're talking circa 2010, 2011. So now when we talk telehealth and these sort of things, it seems like normal. But back then, there were only a few systems really embracing this virtual care world. And so I got into my career, really loved what I was doing, but I quickly saw you know, what happened with the ACA is a lot of people got healthcare coverage and then they started coming to the doctor. And as mm -hmm. a physician, I was like, whoa, a lot of people come to the doctor who haven't seen a doctor. But also what I started to see is that these folks are sick, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe the approach of sick care may not be the best approach in the long term. So it kind of wet my appetite. I was, you know, younger guy, fresh out of residency. I'm always green and looking to do things well. So I was like, you know, there's got to be some other ways in which we could approach health and care or care delivery. So I, you know, had this idea of like, okay, we have to maybe go further upstream. And then I got approached by a system here in my home state. We got to offer that opportunity to build out this more, how should I say, holistic, novel delivery care model. Um, mm -hmm. And they happen to be the largest system here in Texas. And so I was a lead physician. Um, they were implementing the electronic health record. They wanted to get some virtual care things spun up. So this automatically kind of wet my appetite. And so in that particular practice, I had more time with patients, like 60 minutes. We had a And, and that's natural... key. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah. time spent exactly. with patients is a, a metric that is one of the most dissatisfying metrics of patient care relationships with their physician is time spent. Exactly. So, so you had 60 minutes, which is an eternity in primary care medicine. So- um, so speak on that a little more, man, about how, how that's better, not only for the patient, but for the physician. Exactly. So, you know, before every visit was 15, 20 minutes. Right. And so you're just drinking water from a water hose and a faucet that you will never, you'll never quench that thirst, if you will. Mm -hmm. Whereas in 60 minutes, what one of the big takeaways for me was that I stopped doctoring so much from a clinical perspective and started teaching, Right. And so what I saw was the 60 minutes allowed me to build trust. It allowed me to not just say, hey, you need to eat better. But now I can kind of delve a little deeper into that. Now I can talk about the importance of exercise. Now I can actually ask you how you actually feeling, like your mm -hmm. mental health. Mm -hmm. Now we have time to make a big comprehensive plan. And not only do we have time, there's a support structure around that. And so I said, huh. And Here's another concept folks don't know is that like the root word of doctor, Latin docere, is teach or mm. to teach. And so what was amazing to me is when I started teaching, I stopped prescribing as much insulin and blood pressure medications. So it's mm -hmm. like what you start to figure out. And so my style as a physician was starting to adapt. So we're trained to treat, 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 treat. Maybe it needs to be teach, teach, teach and treat. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I started teaching and I said, okay, there is something here because people are actually getting better. Um, and not only that, we're using, I've always been this uh, person who embraces virtual care. So it's like, hey, now I can use this technology to reach you when you're not here. Again, we're talking five, three, four, five years before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So to your point, the average time spent with the physician in this country is about 14.5 minutes a year. And that's if you go. Right. So 60 minutes visit is already kind of beating that metric. And that's some of the things that we're, you know, obviously doing and implementing in GP health. So I say that to say that this experience is kind of what laid the foundation where it's like, okay, more time, more teaching, health literacy, consistent follow-up, using the technology. How about we just design a practice like that and detach it, if you will, from the payment structure that incentivizes sick care mm. and will incentivize, right, us to keep folks healthy. And so that's where a lot of, when we, you know, the initial question, this is kind of where this bore out of. Um, and so you're exactly right. I, as a physician, see that as key if we're going to achieve better health outcomes is like you have to at least have time to lay some sort of a foundational plan here. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, the the insurance piece and, and, and my own opinion is this, even with the Affordable Care Act and things like that, um, that was pretty much sold as an insurance coverage plan, meaning mm -hmm. uh, more coverage for folks, uh, more access to insurance, so forth and so on. Uh, so when you took that approach with GP Health, how do you bring in that really uh, significant and, and complex piece of healthcare delivery, which is the insurance part of it? Uh, what are you doing innovatively around that piece as you you know get more and more um, uh, involved with GP Health and, and GP Health is able to touch more people? Yeah, so GP Health is really a, it embraces what we call direct care or direct to consumer care. So we're a membership based platform, meaning that think of it as a gym membership. Okay. So it's a kind of monthly, quarterly, annually fee, annual fee that can be paid monthly, quarterly or annually. Um, and what that does is, you know, the way it works is that we bring our members in um, and we collect data about them before they even get there. So, yes, medical, family, social history, but also this is also taken in the context of lifestyle, like what do you eat, how you're exercising, how do you feel? So it allows us to really curate and personalize this first visit, which is this 60 minute, what I call a comprehensive lifestyle exam, right? Um, and so because I'm not incentivized, and I'll just stop and integrate what we're talking about insurance, because I'm not incentivized that, hey, I'm only going to get paid when I see 30 sick people today. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. Now we can spend the time that we need because this is a prepaid option, if you will, for well care. And I'm not incentivized to say, hey, I have to churn and burn through patients and do what I call assembly line medicine just to make ends meet as a independent private doc. So it, it takes the pressure, like that pressure from third parties leaves the room. Mm. So it's amazing how much you can accomplish when the relationship is direct. Mm -hmm. Me and you are collaborating on you getting better, right? And these are the tenets of you getting better. Now, I know you personally because I have this data. So before you get there, this is a highly curated, personalized experience for you. We know what's important to you, et cetera. We'll address that. 
And yes, we'll talk about your diabetes and hypertension, but we're also going to talk about these factors that will actually keep you well um, throughout this engagement, right? Mm -hmm. So so that's one way that the payment model kind of, you see, you can incentivize certain things or de-incentivize right. certain things, right? And, and so we conduct that visit. We have set follow-up visits throughout the year, whether you're well or not. They're video visits, much like what we're doing now. So mm -hmm. you have the convenience of just kind of staying at home. But by the time you leave that 60-minute visit, there's a wellness plan, preventative plan. There's some health literacy rolled in there. And now you have a clear line of sight to what better health looks like. And this is just kind of what we're seeing early on. And we try, obviously, are going to try to keep you on track throughout the year with that. And where the platform piece comes in is that, look, we can tell you what to do, but we also need to probably provide some support around that. Right. So again, talking about payment models, that's usually not incentivized in something like healthcare. You only paid when somebody is in front of you and it's an episodic thing, right? So now when you have true value-based care wrapped in, it doesn't matter when or how we're getting paid from the third party, we can just do the best thing for you to get the best outcome. And now we have a technology platform that will plug these goals into. And essentially between these visits, you now have information to interact with. This tech is going to induce a positive behavioral change. It's going to prompt. It's going to remind you of the certain things that we've talked about. And so you're just not left out in the dust, if you will. Right. So I'm drawing comparisons here because most of the time, right? You do not have this type of arrangement because the payment model does not incentivize for this. And quite right. honestly, these things are not paid for, right? Supportive technology, right? High touch virtual care, um, literature, health literacy. Like we don't incentivize, payment models are not incentivized for, how should I say, well care, if you will. Right. They're more incentivized right. for sick care. So- right. No, so it's it, flipping it, a lot of that on its head. Yeah, it makes makes sense. And it's a it's it's a less uh I guess institutionally um how can I say this? It's a less stressful approach, I would think, because because you know, patients uh, you know, in full disclosure, I you know, I I won't necessarily know, doesn't matter which healthcare system I work for, but yeah, my my I worked for years in the healthcare system uh at mm -hmm. clinical operations over and so on. Um there is a stress-inducing aspect of insurance companies uh, when the patient's in your room and they've made the co-pays and they, okay, is this covered? I mean, that, so you, you're kind of taking that away from the interaction and the delivery of care because, and because that's massive. There are folks who won't go to the doctor because either they have a large copay or they, this and that, which is that stressing aspect, which prevents people from getting the care they need. So it looks like you're addressing that aspect as well. Yeah, so we're we're addressing that. And that's why in a membership, it's like, you can have insurance, or the folks who don't have insurance, everybody can come to the same place, right? Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. you do have insurance, what we do, I think of it as like, you know, car insurance, right? Like, um, or house insurance, when you need it, you use it. So in this case, for us, when you need labs, you use that, you need imaging, you use that, you need to go to a specialist, that's where you use it. I see. But these very basic maintenance, that, not even basic, but these more fundamental aspects of keeping you healthy, we're going to do that here since this model doesn't necessarily pay for that. Sure. But I have observed that the, you know, the membership opens up doors for those who otherwise just would not engage. 
I mean, we have 40, 50 million uninsured folks in this country. Um, and a lot of them are not who we think. It's not the indigent. It's not always the sick and shut in. It could be an entrepreneur, a business owner, a C-suiter, right? And so they are looking for an option beyond what's currently available. And we as an industry have to start to provide different access points for people and kind of meet them where they're at. Um, you referenced uh, technology and virtual care and, um, you know, telehealth, uh, even though the pandemic um, forced people to adopt some aspects of telehealth in many ways, uh, it's still a, a relatively uncharted area. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's still not fully developed. So um, what are some of the the telehealth challenges uh, for both patients and and physicians and healthcare providers? Uh, and then where do you see some of the opportunities for further development and growth in this area? So, so challenges to me are much like what we just talked about payment, right? Okay. This, think about it. Like this is a tool that has always been there, but we didn't use it because we weren't reimbursed. Right. And the only reason we're using it now is because with the emergency orders that now it's reimbursed on the same level of an office visit. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it has to be incentivized. So the challenges is getting it paid for because the, the, not so dirty little secret is if it's not paid for, it will go away, mm -hmm. like in some format, right? Um, so that's challenge number one to me. Another challenge is that make sure, making sure it's actually equitable and accessible for all populations, um, you know, in, in terms of broadband service, in terms of connectivity, in terms of how we deliver it, but also making sure it's not just a tool for those who it's accessible to. So if it's going to be there, we all should have access to it to a certain degree. Um, and so those are, to me, two of the major challenges that I'm seeing, you know, with telehealth. Now, it's funny because to me, the benefits outweigh the challenges and the benefits are that, you know, high touch, high access care. Now, if you have diabetes, I can just call you about that. You don't necessarily have to come here. Or right. for those who are from certain populations and transportation is an issue, man, we can manage your blood pressure with the phone call now, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And same goes for acuity care or quote unquote urgent care type of visits. If you have, say, strep throat or sinuses are acting up, like these are quick, high quality touch points that you can access here uh, moving forward. So it is an access point and almost an extender of care if we use it correctly. Um, and, and so I, I think the, the benefits outweigh the risk. And I, would, I should also say one of the challenges is, as a physician, I've always done telehealth. It's always been a part of my career because of that's just my career design, uh, whether the organizations I was with or independently. There's a certain skill set needed right and kind of training to still get the necessary information so this doesn't become this risky endeavor you still have to have good bedside banner even though you're theoretically talking into a screen and somebody's not in front of you so i would say one of the also the challenges is, is just training the workforce so it is a smooth workflow but also where there's empathy there's care mm -hmm. and good how should i say virtual bedside mm -hmm. manner and it doesn't just become much like an in-office visit in some places where it's purely transactional. So, you know, there are challenges there as well, but I think it's, it's like with any tool, as we get up to speed, as we use it more, we'll get better at using it for sure. Hmm. 
uh, if I can, one more quick technical question before we move into more of the the um, the care and the actual uh, benefits to that people can find for their health. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things we had talked about, you know, prior was um, the aspect of healthcare information, privacy, and and ensuring that mm -hmm. uh, healthcare records, which are some of the most private records, if not the most private uh, records that an individual can have. Uh, I would imagine setting up your practice in this way, uh, you put in some pretty uh, extensive yep. and, and rigorous um, uh, rules and regulations around privacy and protecting healthcare. So uh, healthcare records. So maybe you could speak on that a little bit as it relates to GP Health. Yeah. So I, I think for us, it was always because, you know, our chief operating officer comes for, has a, you know, MBA, Master's of Public Health. We've both been in healthcare. To your point, privacy, you know, data, having things be high tech, HIPAA compliant, because what we're seeing now is that at times people are not taking the necessary precautions with the data, with the way that it's delivered. But I think those of us who come from a more traditional healthcare background understand the importance of doing so. So I think moving forward, any organization, whether you're a startup, whether you're a novel delivery care model, will need to meet the standards that are required for such sensitive data, but also sensitive interactions. So I think you're exactly right in that we need to, this is the part we need to color in the lines, right? Mm -hmm. We need to make mm -hmm. sure things are safe, things are not being shared, and that there is no, I read your script, there's no additional <laughs> intent, <laughs> you know, to this data that that we, that's so valuable, right? Um, and I think eventually, you know, patients or members or whatever word we would call folks who seek uh, healthcare um, services in the future are probably going to have a lot of this data themselves. And we mentioned this where it's more of a personal thing. You have it and you share it with the organization. I think, I just don't think that we're quite there yet. So yeah. we as organizations have to be good shepherds, if you will, of the data and some of the things that we transmit and receive, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to move now into um, more of the actual healthcare benefits to mm -hmm. to populations. And so, one of the the populations I want to start with is I know you always advocated and been a big proponent of uh, communicating and 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 uh, with African American men and African American male population uh, because there there at times there is a disconnect between healthcare mm -hmm. access delivery and African American men. So, um, tell me about some of the the ways that you are are striving to ensure that uh, some of the disparities we've talked about in care delivery for this population uh, is happening so that uh, African-American men can can get the health care they need, uh, particularly the preventive aspect, which I think is key. And I know you do, too. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And so we were very intentional in how we design things at GP Health. You know, I mentioned these questionnaires and kind of going through that process. But those questionnaires are really designed to, you know, take into well, let me back up and say this. When you look at a healthcare outcome, about 20% is clinical care. About 30 to 40% is healthy behaviors. The other 50%, 40 of which is, is going to be environment and socioeconomic factors. Hmm. So our questionnaire, so what you should take from that is in its rawest form, when people think healthcare is like, oh, I went to a big healthcare system, I saw this, that's only 20% of what you need to do to live a long, healthy life, right? So automatically knowing this, having experience as a physician and delivering care is that, okay, what we're going to do from the very opening inning, right, is yes, we'll get health data, 
but we're going to get data about lifestyle and healthy behaviors too, hmm. right? And we're also going to touch on socioeconomic factors, like do you have a home to live in? Do you have basic access to social services and that sort of thing? So these questions are asked from the very beginning before anybody even gets to us. So, and not to mention, we're acquiring more data points about preventative maintenance and things that you have done to keep yourself healthy. So automatically the equity and the access and some of these things that are really what I consider as a physician are probably more high yield for you are already getting asked in the very beginning, right? And so what that allows us to do is that first visit is very curated, it's very dialed in, but we also are able to practice from a point to where we feel that, okay, now we are confident that we have a better picture of this person, right? This is a 50-year-old African-American male that hasn't seen a doctor, hasn't had a PSA, hasn't had a colonoscopy, right? And the guidelines say we shouldn't offer that for another five years, but based on the personal data that we have, we'll offer it now, right? Mm -hmm. So what what we're starting to do is say, okay, now that we know you a little better, you should do your PSA, you should get your colonoscopy, and we should check for, you know, diabetes and hypertension and look at your cholesterol right here, right now, today, and not wait on that. So, you know, a lot of this has to be intentional. I was on a podcast. I told people this, a lot of it is design, like designing for the end outcome, but also being aware of, you know, as African-American men, I think trust is a big thing for us in coming to see, you know, doctors usually. It's our, I call them our, our chief medical officers in the household, which are our wives and <laughs> our significant others that kind of make us show up for mm-hmm. these visits. So we want to also acknowledge their Black women, their role in being the facilitators of health in our households a lot of the time. And so <laughs> now that we know, hey, this person is at risk for this, well, we need to offer this even if it's not um, against traditional guidelines. I use PSA as a good example where traditionally we would ask at 50 to 55, but a lot of those studies weren't done on black men. So right. we know that for black males, this is usually 40s, early 40s. If it's going to happen, 40s, mid 40s. So we probably need to start checking in as opposed to waiting till 50 and 55, where we may be in a worse scenario. So again, the whole proactive preventative approach is something that we need as people, but also just specifically as African-American males. So I say that to say that what we're attempting to do is also deliver what I call culturally competent care, mm-hmm. where, you know, what's right for Edric Jerome? Like, yes, we follow guidelines, but what's right for Edric at this point, at this moment in his life, based mm-hmm. on his personal profile that he gave us. So we try to practice medicine and deliver care from what I call like an N of one. Like everybody's a one-to-one, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that approach really, when you start to bake in the equity, when you start to give access to people who traditionally would not go to see the doctor, and it's all built on a trusted relationship, you start to see some positive outcomes. And actually, instead of dread about health, what we're observing is enthusiasm about health now. Now I know what to do. And so when we talk about African-Americans in general, when we talk about Black men, Black women, Part of what is baked into what we do, a 60-minute visit, is education and health literacy, just returning to that point. Mm -hmm. As a physician, I cannot tell you how important that is for systemically marginalized and disenfranchised community. 
a little knowledge can go a long way. If you can teach someone how to fend for self and take care of themselves, especially from a health perspective, I'm not going to say, oh, they'll do the work for you, but it goes a long mm -hmm. way. So health literacy is one of these things that, you know, yes, it's great to see a doctor. Yes, um, I'm happy we're delivering care. But I think what I'm most proud of is that people are becoming educated about themselves, their lives, their lifestyles, um, and what it takes to have a good health outcome for them, right? For them as them as an individual. Um, so to your point, and I guess one of the, it's a long-winded way to say that no, health no, literacy is a kind of a tenant. And then we as Black males, I think if we understood the importance of good health, if we understood the importance of being proactive, preventative in terms of our approach, meaning don't let the illness happen at all, beat the illness before the illness beats you, or if you do have it, this is how you manage it, right? Just the education and not just like, hey, go eat. Well, let me show you what you probably should do here. Or this is what exercise looks like. It's not that I need you to go be a bodybuilder. Just get up and walk for 15 minutes a day. So mm -hmm. when people start to understand what they actually need to do to live a long, healthy life, um, you see them action that, and especially for certain communities, it's almost like a light bulb going off. So this health literacy component cannot be understated. Um, with the health literacy, uh, I know you also um, are very well versed in advocacy uh, mm -hmm. in healthcare. And so maybe you can talk about that aspect of it because they all kind of go hand in hand, the literacy, yep. the, the the training, the teaching, but also the advocacy. Can you speak on that? Yeah. So I think the advocacy is, is to your point, I see health literacy and advocacy as almost under the same umbrella and maybe even one thing. And, and, and part of the reason I say that is that when you know you can advocate for self just a little bit better, no matter what the context that you're, you're in. So, so I think that the way traditionally healthcare has been set up where there's bias, um, there's systemic inequalities woven into it, that you knowing how to better care for self now makes you what we call, um, I, I keep using this term, kind of activated patient. Mm -hmm. And we've actually got good literature to show us that if you can go into an office where there's maybe bias set up against you and you have questions, you have knowledge of maybe what you're trying to achieve and not saying that it should all be on the patient to understand it. I think you should get good quality care no matter where you go. You can a lot of times disrupt a poor outcome of bias against you just by going in and saying, hey, these are the things I want to achieve. These are the questions I have, et cetera. So I think that these things, part of the reason I'm big on literacy, because I feel like I'm equipping, empowering individuals to be able to self-advocate, right? Um, but we also, as healthcare professionals, have to say, okay, what's, uh, what, what are ways that we can weave this into our you know, clinic visits, our way that we approach and deliver care to where people can feel more empowered and knowledgeable about you know, who, I, who they are from a healthcare perspective, because on down the line, as they deal with different specialists, this will come into play, or they deal with the system, this will come into play. Um, and I've seen that, honestly, for communities of color, that can be the difference of good and bad outcomes. You know, I've seen that in my own family, and we're family of healthcare professionals. So no one is got to escape, you know, inequities or biases. And so one of the best ways to do that is to become an advocate for self 
advocate for loved ones, advocate for family members. Um, and again, health literacy is one way that, that it looks, right? But also it could just be, hey, I'm going to go to a visit with the loved one and make sure that they're getting the necessary information from this visit so we can take the proper actions afterwards. So I see these things as being almost one thing, if you will. Yeah. A uh, quick public service announcement. If you have a loved one, make sure you have your advanced health care directive, uh, make sure mm -hmm. or power of attorney or uh, that you've taken the steps proactively to have someone either speak on your behalf or that you are able to speak on their behalf if something happens. So uh, please, 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 especially in our community, uh, go ahead yes. and get those advanced uh, health care directives so that um, the system doesn't start making decisions for one of your loved ones and you're sitting there helpless. Um, mm -hmm. We have a few minutes left. I, I You have yeah. another aspect of, of uh, GP Health that I want to touch on, and that's you have a direct-to-consumer uh, retail pipeline for supplements yeah. and healthcare related products. So uh, you're going holistically about the, the services and, and products and things like that, that people need for improving health. So talk to me about how you came to develop that part of GP health. Um, and, you know, how is it going with that? Yeah. So it's funny because what I found myself doing, you know, the way that I, I have evolved as a physician is that when someone comes to see me and even at GP health, like, I'm not going to automatically start talking about your health issues. I want to know what you're putting in your body. Are you exercising? How's your mental health? Are you resting? Do you have social connectivity? And just overall, how do you feel? Because mm -hmm. from experience and practice, that, those things have, and, and again, the data proves this when we talk about this health outcome pie, those things have a lot to do with how, like, even if I prescribe this medication, you're gonna you're going to proceed and progress, right? And so what I found is that a lot of times now I am not necessarily I'm trying to de-escalate medications. I'm trying to de-prescribe. I'm trying not to prescribe or escalate medications if it's not necessary. So part of that is saying, hey, I think folks should be on a multivitamin, let's say African Americans, maybe vitamin D, vitamin C. So we were saying if we're not prescribing traditional medications as much, we want to provide a service where folks can get medical grade products, nutraceuticals, if you will, from a reputable source that are greatly manufactured and not you're just not pulling them out of the shelf. So we wanted to provide that within our practice as a service. And we actually do. You know, our members have access to over 10,000 medical grade supplements and products um, at a discount, if you will, um, because they're a member of GP Health. So instead of sending you out, think of that as our in-house nutraceutical uh, pharmacy, if you will, except this time, Dr. Price has prescribed 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C. Dr. Price has prescribed vitamin D3 at 2,000 international units, or we want you to take certain multivitamins to really, again, continue to optimize you from a health perspective or we're giving omega-3s for cholesterol and cognitive uh, fitness. So yes, it's a service. Yes, it generates revenue, but it's also one of those things where it's an all-encompassing thing and it allows us to provide a higher level of service. So we're, so we're, we're proud of that um, and we're happy to offer that as a feature. Um, and, and our members actually like it. They love it. And they've been shopping on it. And <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, it also allows me to kind of direct and not just say, hey, go buy this. It was like, no, we've got a great product here and we can actually send that to you. 
you know, all orders are drop shipped. It goes right to the front door, you know, free delivery. So it's also like a service aspect to that as well. Cause I found myself at prior practice saying like, Hey, you need to go get all these vitamins. I was like, well, <laughs> why don't I just have that here for y'all? So you don't have to go. Um, and it's much like a medication that you would send to a pharmacy. If we send it to the pharmacy or if we just talk about it and we give you a written script, well, maybe you won't feel that. But if I right. electronically prescribe that, you'll go pick it up and take it. Mm -hmm. Same thing here is that you're more likely to do these things if we just have it built in for you to automatically do. So it's also kind of one of those things where you observe the workflow and, and it kind of works for us and our members. Well, uh, Dr. Garrett Price, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, before we wrap up, if there's is there anything we didn't uh, cover for GP Health, anything else that you want to let us know about? And then also, how can people get more information about you, GP Health, uh, so that they can, you know, take a look at it and see if this works for them? Yeah, yeah. So our, our website is drgp.health. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, we also have a, you know, our social accounts are active and we have folks responding. So you can find us on Instagram, uh, at GP health. You can find us. So the Twitter is kind of tied down. Um, so those are the ways that, that you could reach us. Um, and you know, I, I, I would say in closing is like, yeah, we love what we're doing at GP health, um, and proactive, preventative, a more upstream approach is going to be key to us achieving health, certainly in certain populations. But if not GP health, we highly encourage you to be an active participant in your own health, your own longevity, because health is truly wealth uh, in every sense of the word and not just kind of monetarily. So we want our folks to be thriving and have the highest quality of life. And we feel that GP Health is a vessel uh, and a delivery system and allows our members to achieve that. And already our feedback is that this is life changing. It's beneficial. This is definitely different from what I traditionally get. So, yeah, so we're 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 excited about this. As, as you should be. Well, Dr. Magyar Price, founder and president of GP Health. Again, thank you so much for coming on The Edric Show. Um, and congratulations. You are literally at the forefront of a new model and a new approach to delivery of care. And I applaud you for taking the the risk uh, to, to put yourself out there, man, because I know it's not yeah. easy uh, with a lot of pressures that that come with providing health care. So thank you so much. Uh, and congratulations, because, I, I, again, I think you are you are on to something. And uh, I think as more people find out and discover GP Health, uh, they're going to realize that this is a great alternative. So thank you very much. Most definitely. I appreciate the space and the time, Edric. Love what you're doing with the show. And uh, thanks Thank for you. having us. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. As I promised, this is Intelligent Conversation with Interesting People. Hit that subscribe button. Check us out on Spotify, YouTube, a host of online streaming platforms. Again, as I bring you this interesting content each and every week. Thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.